Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 152 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and here with me is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hello, everyone. Today, we are closing out February with this month's Donor Pick episode. Our patrons voted and chose 12 Years a Slave for us to cover, and we're hoping to have a meaningful conversation about this very important film. It's a doozy, and as any of you who have seen it well know, we are going to just go ahead and get right into it now. Well, that is after we give you an obligatory spoiler warning, because we're going to talk about this film in detail. We're going to go over our emotional response to this film and its multiple themes. And if you haven't seen it yet, you need to. No matter how tough it is to get through, it is definitely worth it. So do that, then come back and listen later. But for those that have seen the film, I guess here we go. And we're going to get started with one word takeaways as usual. So Patrick, why don't you kick us off? I will do that. Free was the word that came to mind when I watched this movie. And in some ways, I feel like it's a little little on the nose, even though we're dealing with slavery and, and freedom. And the word kept rolling around in my head as I watched it, but it kept taking on new meaning depending on what part of the movie I was watching. It seems that in this kind of narrative that McQueen is taking us through, being free takes on multiple meanings. For Solomon, it meant not being a slave. For guys like Epps, it meant not having to give up anything for his labor. Though he did purchase them, what they gave him day in and day out was without any kind of payment. Even for guys like Bass, there's the idea of being free from the cultural prejudices and sadistic ideologies of Southern life, being that he was from another country, like Canada. And there's so much nuance in the idea behind the word throughout this movie that I think it helps to grasp some of the bigger themes and ideas that McQueen and company were giving us. So every time I think about the word free from now on, I'm going to think about this movie because of all those different iterations and meanings surrounding it. Well, that's good stuff, man. I think that's definitely fitting, at least for the end of the film, especially. Fits with that pretty well. Well, my one word takeaway is heartbreaking. This was my first rewatch of the movie since a few days before it won its Oscar for Best Picture in 2013. And it's only the second time I've ever seen it. I remember it very, very well because the first year I had ever completed seeing all of the nominees, this was included. And I did it by seeing a whole bunch in the same day. It was before they had the Best Picture festivals, or maybe it was kind of the beginning of that. And during that one day, I saw Gravity, Dallas Buyers Club, 12 Years a Slave, and Her. So that was a very emotional 18 hours or so. I gotta say. And I've never really gone back to it, I admit, because, you know, I've avoided it purposely, honestly, due to how hard it was to observe the violence and the inhumanity as it's displayed in this film. And this viewing went pretty much as expected. 
with me left completely a weepy mess in awe of Steve McQueen's storytelling ability, but also, I don't know, feeling kind of broken over the hatred for and the evil done um, to so many of our fellow human beings. Because when you watch this, it has a way of transporting you into it that maybe not all films that portray slaves do um, as far as your emotional investment in the characters and in those characters as ciphers for the entire, you know, population of African-Americans who were slaves over the course of history. So yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking, man. It was really, really hard to watch. Um, Yeah. That's definitely an appropriate word. I, I could probably use that just as easily. Definitely. Well, we're going to go through it and see what we can come up with. Um, <laughs> so the story is based on true events, which is insane and, of course, heartbreaking and sad. I wondered, how did knowing that it was a true story affect our viewing? So for you, were you kind of comparing this to other depictions of slavery that we've seen and how do you think that following Solomon as a free man first and then being kidnapped may have changed the way that we saw this perspective from this film? Well, I, I think early on, to answer your first question, I don't know that a I look at a biopic like this, which is essentially what this is, and it's important to understand that I go back and forth about my liberal way of looking at historical accuracy when it comes to biopics because you're telling the story of a person's life but you're also trying to entertain but when it comes to movies like this and there are other movies like this not necessarily dealing with slavery but dealing with issues that are really important to our culture specifically racial issues it's important to get it right and it's important to get as much accuracy as possible because you do have a personal responsibility with something that th- that's this important. And so knowing that it was based on a true story, I kind of trusted it, that it was going to be accurate, that there wasn't going to be any sensationalism. And so having that mentality, it was reinforced by the fact that we see Solomon as a free man early, that we see his life as a normal dad, husband, violin player, all these things that as we're watching this play out feel very normal. And so he becomes accessible. So as a, as a person, not necessarily as a white person, but as a person, I can connect with him because I'm a dad, because I'm a husband, because I'm a musician, obviously not in the same situation as he is in because I don't live in that time period, but I immediately get some sort of connection with him. And I think that's very effective because of the way in which he gets put into slavery in his kidnapping. Like we see his freedom get taken away as opposed to hearing about it through a book or other stories of slaves that were free at one point or sold into slavery. Like even the story of Joseph from, from the Bible feels a little separated because that's the majority of the story that I know. Oh yeah. That's the big thing about Joseph got the big, you know, dream coat, and then he got sold into slavery. Seeing the life of Solomon before that, knowing that something was taken away, getting to meet his family, 
made his journey more effective on a human level, which I think was a big part of McQueen's vision was he wanted us to be able to say, this is a person. Remember that he is not property. He is not the N word. He is a person. And you need to remember that no matter who you are. And that was really effective for me. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think, you know, it's in a way indicting of the way that we typically see these stories and interact with them because I have been less invested in other narratives that have included slavery and characters with emotional arcs, but not having seen them as free at any time, seeing them as people who've grown up in this place who've never known anything other than slavery it's a it's a completely different dynamic and it i think it allows us to see some of ourselves in solomon's character because we are free and we've never had to deal with that problem and so when you see someone who's just a slave you can't relate to that but when you see someone who is free and then kidnapped and sold into slavery that could happen to any of us white black or otherwise in theory. And so it does create much more of an emotional connection to those characters, I think. Um, when you, when you look at the, the history of this, actually, this was one of, he, when he wrote this, Solomon Northup, the actual book that this, base, this is based on, it was one of like 150, and they called them slave narratives at the time, um, that were published before the Civil War. And their purpose was to give the white northerners a firsthand glimpse of slavery which would then hopefully do this and enlist them in the anti-slavery crusade. So it was both a literary thing, but it was also propaganda. It was very intentional about the portrayal that it wanted to show. So, you know, you always have to wonder, you know, how accurate is it? I don't think it matters, honestly, in this case, because the details of what happens to Solomon along the way are never the point in this story. You know what I mean? It's not like a we're going through this big moment of time in which X event happens. It's way more concentrated on the feelings and the emotions and the overall like lack of humanity and, you know, death of humanity in these people. Yeah, it's it's a narrative that plays itself out in pockets of ownership with him under, you know, essentially two masters and the situations that come from that. But the narrative speaks to his response to it, his relationship to those situations and to those people and how he works through it, how he survives and how he lives. And I like the fact that I don't, not having read the book, I don't know how much was omitted in terms of the entire 12 years. Like, did we get Ford's time was the first three and then Epps was the next nine? I, I don't know. And it doesn't matter because what McQueen is showing us is what he feels like is the important story that he wants to tell. And it is. And I, I'm not going to, I would almost argue that his freedom was not the point of the movie. I don't think that was the high point of the movie of the story that 
that McQueen was trying to tell, I think it was a great resolution, but it wasn't without its consequences. And I think that's why we live in a lot of this despair and a lot of this pain and a lot of this real visceral life of Solomon and the people that he comes into contact with because of the fact that that's the life of a slave, not, and that's not the point of this story is for him to get his freedom, but for him to survive and for him to live. Yeah. And I, you mentioned the dual masters. I think that that's really key to this story is the lack of stereotypes that you typically see in other movies that feature this kind of um, slavery. And, you know, you always have evil masters and we have that here. We have specifically, we have Paul Giamatti's character who's literally named Freeman, of course, um, who's just an awful human being um, full of the, the typical hatred that we kind of assume must have been the reason for slavery. Um, that, and then we see the different masters. We see the Cumberbatch character and, and the Fassbender characters. And they give us a totally different perspective, I think, because there's just a huge contrast in how Ford treats Solomon versus how Epps treats Solomon. And yet, do you think that, so, so I guess, do you think that that helps you relate to it more because we see someone that maybe we don't think of as totally evil, but he's still a slave owner? Yeah. Ford represents for me a person that understands only the world that he's grown up in. I was reading a little bit of research about this because this is one of the this is one of the parts of the movie that I struggled with, but not because it was bad, but because of the fact that we're presented with an what I consider an authentic dichotomy of master. And even if you include Paul Giamatti's character as the as the the seller, there's a, a trichotomy, I guess you would call it that. But looking at Ford, I I struggled because this is a movie that is at least in part telling us slavery is wrong. If I'm going to be very obvious or just very surface related to this. So how do we react to Ford? And as I was working through it and, and reading some things about it in Solomon's book, he talks about Ford as a character or and not as a character, but as a person, he said, he's probably one of the most gracious men that he's ever known. And he almost sympathizes with him and apologizes for the fact that this is the only world that Ford knows. It's the only world that Epps knows and the only world that even um, these other guys know. It, it, this is the South. This is, is how the world works, independent of the fact that it's wrong. But this is how the world works. And I feel like the Ford, like Ford himself is a man who sees value in people, not necessarily in the, the value that they bring to society. So he accepts the fact that black people are meant to be this or that. They're meant to serve this purpose. And so in his world, I think he sees them as valuable, but not necessarily as equal. Does that make sense? 
Like, I think he sees them and their role as appropriate, but doesn't feel the need to treat them with disrespect. So it, I think Mm -hmm. if I were to make the the comparison, it would be like a slave versus an indentured servant. Yep. You know, or, or a, you know, a, a house slave, someone who takes care of the house and who has in some ways equal respect in terms of what they do, even though they live in a lower class of society and i think ford represents that kind of ignorance but not ignorance because he chooses to and embraces that but he tries to find the best in that kind of ignorance even though he doesn't know that that's what it is it it, absolutely and i think it's it's the comparison i would make and i've watched so many movies in the last week patrick about this stuff that some of this is blending into my brain together so i don't even remember what film this is from might have been black's Klansman that we're going to talk about down the road in a couple of days, but there's a character that's talking in this movie about how he grew up admiring Hattie from Gone with the Wind as a maid, and that's I think what you're talking about. Where the difference is is you know that's a character who is respected and has a place and is valued in their role, but they're still not free. So you can be not free and treated with respect. You know what I mean? Without actually being able to make your own decisions at the same time. And that's what Ford is. And I, and I agree with you totally. Like he, I like his character because he shows us a perspective that is very realistic toward how slavery became a thing. How did this, when you look, when you step back and you think about how the heck did we actually allow this to happen in the country? You know, it's easy to say, I would never have done that. Or I, I wouldn't have been part of that, but clearly it happened. And so it wouldn't have only happened if there were people like Epps. It had to happen because people were apathetic to it. And that's what Ford is kind of showing us is those people that are like not really willing to push the boundaries, not really willing to to push against it, even though maybe in his heart of hearts, he really has no desire to, to own anybody else. You know what I mean? But like that's the culture. And it's right. not worth the fight for him um, because it would be, you know, to go against the status quo. Well, and I think the scene that really sticks out to me is just after Solomon has the fight with one of the slave masters that he is just in the, when he's under the ownership of Ford and they get into that huge fight and it's almost somewhat hilarious the way he just slaps the dude down. It it's reminds awesome. He gives remind, Paul Dano the business, man. It's dude, great. Dude, dude, it's, it's, it's terrific. It's so it proud of him. And the next scene, or a couple of scenes later, we see we see him beat up, and Ford is letting him know, I'm getting you out of here. You're going to be put in the service of Epps. But he gives him this warning. You need to be obedient. You need to do these things because Epps is a lot tougher than me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Ford. What's the lesser of two evils here? You've got this guy who can take care of himself and whips your slave master to death because he won't take that crap off of him. And now you're selling him to someone else who's going to be, who's not going to take care of you. And that was hard because that told me that as much as Ford cared about his slaves, that's what they were to him. They were still his slaves. It wasn't like a cousin or a brother or a family friend. If he cared about Solomon as a person, beyond just the fact that he was good at what he did and he was reliable and he was gentle and he could play the violin 
mm-hmm. he would have protected him. That's, yep. that's my takeaway from that. And the fact that he didn't told me that his fam, his personal family situation became more important than the relationships with the other folks that were part of that. Absolutely. It's, it's one thing to, to protect someone when your safety is not on the line, but to then put your, put your own neck out there for it, it becomes a different thing. I loved the conversation Solomon had about this in the movie. It's very powerful. And I, and I forget who he's talking to. I think it's, it's Eliza, I believe that is, is with him at Ford's the, the mother of the two kids who are taken and she's the one he's talking to. And she's always crying and he's, you know, he's had these conversations with her about like, why don't you let it go? And she's like, really? I love how she comes back at him and, and challenges him. And she's like, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but in this moment, he kind of tells her off. He says, Master Ford is a decent man. And she says, he is a slaver. And he says, under the circumstances. And she right. says, under the circumstances, he is a slaver. And I was like, yeah. yes, yes, you need to hear that because it's easy to become brainwashed. Like Solomon is essentially brainwashed. Now, is it, is it evil intentions from Ford? Nope. It's not. Does he give him a, a fiddle out of love or out of trying to, you know, to, to, to you know, it, it is, it's out of care. Yeah. But at the same, it still has had the unintended effect of brainwashing Solomon into believing that this is okay. Well, and I think there's some nuance to that too, because it's really interesting how that scene is tagged with the, with the script writing is Ford gives him the violin as a gift and he leaves the conversation. First of all, he, um, Solomon can't go up to the porch. He's not allowed necessarily on the porch. And then, and then Ford leaves with the line. I can't remember specifically what it is, but he basically says, I look forward to hearing this in over the next several years you know i believe we're going to have a long a great relationship with that with that violin indicating that you're in it for life you're i'm not thinking about your freedom you your freedom is not even coming across in my head and i think that solomon when he's talking to her in his head he's thinking he doesn't know any better and she's reminding him but he should because this is wrong Putting people in your home to do things for you without a wage and without treating them with equal respect as people is wrong. And I love her character. I love the fact that she is there because what starts out as someone who needs to just shut up and get over it from his perspective turns into, no, it's important. I'm going to remember my family. I'm going to weep for my children because I love them because I do not want to forget them. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. And of course, then we move to Epps' character because I feel like it's a perfect transition here because he, he moves to Epps's, you know, location and he's transferred, sold, I guess I should say. Let's be real about it here. And it kills me because the first introduction to Epps is him essentially preaching to his slaves using the Bible to justify slave ownership while simultaneously threatening them with lashes for disobedience. And as a Christ follower, as a, an identified Bible believer, it hurts me even more to hear biblical text misused like this 
for such a, you know, just a dastardly evil. And I mean, this is really what happened. Like, this is part of why slavery was able to take hold is because people came from the British with the Puritans came here with this idea that they were right. And this was an interpretation of the Bible that they had. And the only way you could have made this stick is to make it fit with people's religion. And so they twisted these words and they made this a reasoning, a reasoning. Uh, and I just can never get understanding, understanding this misunderstanding, I guess, of scripture in that context. Um, yeah, without yeah, getting, it's hard. It is. And without getting into a big theological discussion about this, I think that the big thing that I'm taking away from my experience this week in being um, doing rewatches of certain movies that will get talked about later, um, I'm I'm getting the understanding that you can use and things were used to gain power and control over a situation or over a people. And first of all, I definitely agree with you. The misuse of scripture and the abuse of scripture in order to justify any kind of behavior like this is wrong. So I'll just go ahead and say that and, and put that out there. But I think that this problem still exists and our local church body is dealing with some of that with regards to the role of women in the church. And it brings about this same conversation, I will say in this context, you're missing an element of what scripture holds. And that's an element of love and value of people, because this is not the message of Jesus, the message of Paul. This is a message of selfish flesh driven people. And Epps is a fantastic vision of that. And I say fantastic in the thematic sense, not that I would, I love him. I think Fassbender just owns that role. Yeah. And just as a side note, did not recognize half these actors because they were just, I was like, Oh, that's Michael Fassbender, like halfway through this. And then, you know, Paul Dano, I was like, Whoa, 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 that's okay. Dude, so, he's, I, I, and they're all phenomenal. I mean, they are. The, the, honest to goodness, like the cast and the acting in this are just every single person except Brad Pitt. I, I have issues with the Brad Pitt role and we'll get the, he, he may come up later, but like as far as the acting goes, He's the only moment in this movie where I'm taken out of the movie. Because I, I'm like, I'm like, left Brad Pitt talking weird. And that's not <laughs> like somebody, but you're right. The, it, it is a good contrast because the rest of these actors, like Paul Dano, I, I just, I, I, ugh, so creepy and gross. And like between him and Paul Giamatti, like I just wanted to strangle them to death. Like I, yes. I hated them, literally hated them. And that's how I needed to feel. That's what the movie wanted me to feel. And to understand. And so it, it did, they did, y'all did a great job. Sorry to hijack you. No, no, it's okay. I, I gave you the jack to hijack, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I look at this and it's interesting because just going back to the fourth character real quick, we see scripture being used by him. He's preaching to his slaves and you have that really interesting contrast of him preaching while the Eliza character is screaming and weeping. And it's almost like he's ignoring that. So that kind of further shows his disconnect with how unconnected he is emotionally to his slaves. And again, in context, that's probably the best thing to be because you don't want to be that personally connected to your, to your property. 
You, you know what's funny is I took that differently. Wow. I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense, but my reading of that moment and that scene was one of compassion. Interesting. <laughs> I, I read it as him allowing her to cry and wail and disrupt his intended service yeah. out of respect for what she had lost without yelling at her and screaming at her and making her shut up. So it's in, it's very interesting that we saw that. I mean, I think we could both be right. But. I was going to say, I think it's a both and mm-hmm. at this point. Because of that duality that exists in him, he cares about them to a point. <laughs> Whereas the Epps character would have probably pulled her out and whipped her to death. Exactly. Yeah. Instantly. But what's interesting is how not only what specific scripture is used, but how that scripture is is overlaid and and how scripture and faith and God specifically are embedded in both sides of the conversation. They are important to the white slave owners for their specific reasons, and they are important to the black slaves for specific reason, uh, excuse me, for specific reasons. And it comes to a culmination later on when we start kind of understanding there is a universality. There's one God that exists and it's, there's tension there in that it kind of gets your, gets the audience to ask the question, well, if the same God exists on both sides of this argument, which side is right? <laughs> because it's the same Bible. It's the same God that's being referenced. But which God is the one that's being deified as genuine and which God is the one that's being falsified for selfish gain? And if you didn't understand that, I mean, we understand that 200 years later, but at the time that would have been very ambiguous for maybe a child of a slave owner, you know, saying, hey, these people over here are singing hymns and talking about God and so are you, but there's something weird going on here because they're playing a role and they're suffering and we're not what's happening here. Oh, for sure. And there's, there's so many examples of it in this movie. There's another one that's really powerful. To be honest, I said to you after this, you know, this whole film is a connecting point essentially because of the flow of the narrative. There's a super powerful moment where there is a funeral going on towards the end of the film. And Solomon is just sitting there in silence and all these slaves around him are just singing and they're traditional black hymns, right? That, that have ne'er, have come out of the slave campfires and such. And you see him finally begin to sing with them. It's one of the many great uses of music and sound in this film, but it's a superb performance in this moment. And I think it really shows how they get by and how they deal because if you listen to the lyrics, it's all about having hope for eternity. And I think in that moment, you know, Solomon to an extent is finally putting some hope in eternity and saying my here and now may never get better. Like these people have accepted that doesn't mean they're not, they want it, but there is a level of like, I have to have something to believe in because if I don't, then what else is there? Right. Like, this is my reality. It's not going to change. There has to, I have to believe that there's something better there. 
What's interesting about that is I took it differently. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. And not really in a negative way. It's the same kind of reaction. Because up to that point, he has been fighting. He is He's a free man. And he believes that he is a free man. And we refer to him as Solomon, but that's not who he's known by for most of the movie. And at this funeral, Platt, Platt is his is his name there. Mm-hmm. And during that funeral scene, what I took away from that was you had this stoic, I'm not going to be broken. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to live. I'm not just going to survive. And when he starts singing, when he starts breaking down, I mean, you could see his brokenness almost start to melt and how that 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 rugged exterior just softened up in a way. It was almost like he was releasing all of that tension that he'd been experiencing over the course of those several years. And I'm not going to argue saying that he gave up. But I will say that I feel like he gave into a better thing to rely on, to believe in and to hope in. I don't think McQueen was making a spiritual commentary. here. I think this was the nature of black culture. And as you mentioned, that's what they had to believe in. But I also think this was a very big moment of brokenness for him where for so long he maybe felt like he was living and, and fighting and doing whatever it took. And said, I'm eventually going to get out of here. And I think in that moment, there was part of him that died and said, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of here. So I need to find something to, to rely on and live for. I, I found the same thing when I was doing prison ministry several years ago. Those guys that were serving life knowing that they were never going to get out were the ones that adjusted to life in prison the night, the easiest, but the ones that felt the most settled because they knew this was their world and they were going to make the best of it. And they had to figure out how to do that. So they had kind of given up the ghost in a sense of their previous life. And I think in that moment, that's what he did. He was giving up the ghost. He was giving up being Solomon. And I don't know when the violin breaking scene happened, but I want to say it was shortly thereafter. I could be wrong. But I feel like those two are tied together. Yeah. I mean, well, you lose something that is your identity. He loses something that matters to him is one sense of comfort when there is none. You know, um, you, you lose that. And what else do you have? He was very resistant to forming deep relationships with people, whether even even Eliza and Patsy like we never saw. It's the passage of time you brought up earlier was one of the few things that I thought was kind of off a little bit. I, I would have liked to known more about what the time was doing, like how many years were happening in between events and such. I read something online, though, about this one a review somewhere, and, and they put it in a really interesting way. They said, you know, they thought that the fact that his appearance never changes really in the 12 years is not a knock on McQueen. It's not like a miss when it comes to detail that the film is so detailed that it has to be on purpose. And the fact that he doesn't hardly change his physical appearance is more likely a nod to his resilience in believing that he is not going to just survive, that he is going to live versus those who have changed so much because they've just given into it and accepted it. And I thought that was an interesting way to view the, the passage of time. Absolutely. Um, I do want to transit. I want to talk about the women in this film. We have some main characters. We have, well, we have the awful mistress forward, which God help me. I, I've never, I, you know, Sarah Paulson's amazing, 
Yeah, and I, I don't know, again, like you said, to be able to morph into a character that made me absolutely despise every single second that she was on screen Ugh. was incredible acting. But yeah, it, it was gross. The slave women, though, we had Eliza. We talked about a little bit with the mother who lost her kids or lost one of them. And we had Patsy. Um, Lupita Nyong'o, who's, who won an Oscar for this role. And then we had, um, the, who's the other, I'm trying, I'm blanking, Mr. Shaw. Uh, and she's the one I wanted to kind of use here because she also has a theological moment that is pretty strong. She, we see her and she is talking to Patsy and she's having tea. And they, they invite him over to have tea, and he's like, uh, no, are you crazy? <laughs> you know? And we get to know a little bit about her, and she shows us a different type of life that certain slaves had, those that were overly valued by their masters in a way. And she has this great conversation with Patsy and him, and she says this. She says, I know what it like to be the object of Mass's predilection and peculiarities. This script, by the way, is fire. I absolutely love it. And I knowed they can get expressed with kindness or with violence. A lusty visit in the night or a visitation from the whip. And with my experience, if I can give comfort, then comfort I give. And you take comfort, Patsy. The good Lord will manage Epps. In his own time, the good Lord will manage them all. Yes, Lordy, there's a day coming that will burn as an oven. It coming as sure as the Lord is just. When his will be done, the curse on the Pharaohs is a poor example of all that wait for the plantation class. And very shortly after this is Patsy almost getting raped and well, getting raped and almost killed by Epps in that display of power over her horribly painful scene where she begs Solomon to kill her. She's that Oscar speech moment where she says, I ain't got no comfort in this life. And then what we see is a plague on F's cotton and he knows it. It's like, it's like Mr. Shaw was prophesying because there's this complete ruining of his crops. And he even says, he says, what have I done that God hates me so? But he, so he, not, I think he acknowledges it. I think he knows. And he chooses to then project, as always, and blame it on the slaves rather than take responsibility for his own actions. It's like, it's like someone who suffers the consequences of stealing something and gets caught, but then, like, plays it off and doesn't actually accept the consequence because, you know, I had to do that or I was in need. So I had to do something about that. Um, and it just, I, I think that the different ways in which people view religion as a, as comfort, as hope, as ultimately judging versus so, so like Mr. Shaw is viewing the same Bible as a, a method of judgment on the slave owners, whereas the slave owners are using the Bible to justify their own judging of the African-American slaves. It's pretty interesting, um, but also very sad. It is. And when you look at the way scripture is used, I think for each type of group, 
there is, I won't call it a misuse, but I will call it a misinterpretation or a, or a, a wide interpretation of the, who is the focal point of those passages. And the obvious misuse or misinterpretation comes from the slave owning side, because every time we see, for the most part, scripture being used, it's always in connection with the world of the white man. And so there is this ethnocentrism that is pushed onto scripture. And again, I'm not going to get into the theological side of this. We probably will, but because it's just part of it. But the fact is, when it comes to proper scriptural interpretation, we have to understand contextually what scripture meant at the time that it was being written. And the, the obvious thing is we can't take because slavery happened in the Bible. It must be right. And that's the over That's the oversimplification of what's happened here. But I think in a lot of other pockets of things, we have an oversimplification of scripture in order to benefit the world of the slave owner, not just the justification for slavery, but the justification for punishment or the fact that it's not my fault. It's something else. It's the fact that there might be a sinner in this plantation among you slaves. And what we see from an audience's standpoint is a complete misunderstanding of that and really more of a blame shifting, which is a human character trait. But on from a faith-based side, that's kind of what we do as Christians. You know, we tend to think of on the whole the world of Christianity is the center point and the rest of the world should get in line with what we think. Whereas I think that the right way is to understand the worldview of everyone, even if at the core of what we believe is the one truth that we get from scripture of John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth and the life that doesn't denounce the fact that there are other people out there that don't believe that. And I don't want to get off on a rail, but I think that when we, when we see scripture used in this context, in the world of slavery, slave ownership, the interesting thing is how a piece of scripture, how one line, and it could be a poem, it could be something else, how important it was to everyone and the reasons why it was important. So knowing that for, for Epps, it was a way in which he could regain power and regain control and justify, I think, a conflict in his heart. I believe that when he said, why is God punishing me? I believe he was actually asking that question. I don't think he was being facetious or flippant about it. I think he was like, what did I do wrong? Which tells me that when you're immersed in something like that, in a world where religion and the culture are colliding, it can get very muddy. And I think that he was confused. He's like, what did I do wrong? I, I, I shouldn't, I don't deserve this. And I yeah. think you believe that even though he's completely wrong. Right. Oh, no, I think that that is a common theme in Epps' character throughout because it plays out as well with his relationship with Patsy. You know, throughout we see a real vicious objectification of black women essentially by white slave owners. And this is what Epps does. He reveres her one moment and rapes her the next. Yeah. And I found that same kind of conflict in his character that you're talking about where I, I think he 
had a desire for Patsy that on some level was pure or honorable or honest or like in another world, would we have seen Epps and, and Patsy in a relationship, in an interracial, you know, relationship if these were completely different characters like he would he would be approachable to that but because that's not an okay thing in the culture because she's your slave and you have to you have to exert this power over her that's not how this relationship plays out but there are moments in it when you you know he genuinely cares about her at the same time because he protects her um he he will actually like take up for her uh, against others. And so it's very, very strange to see how they, they can justify kind of this going back and forth. And I think that he does that. I think he justifies what he does to her by through the moments where he quote unquote protects her or gives her special treatment. Right. Right. But then there's the kids, right? Who gets ripped away from Eliza at the mm-hmm. beginning. And we realize that there were so many people in this slave ownership trade that it was, it was a business to them. I mean, it's, it's, it's a harrowing scene where at the beginning and he's, he's like testing out her son and showing, he's like showing how athletic he is. Paul Giamatti's character calls him a beast. He's like, he will turn into a fine beast one day and work for you. And I'm just, I was, my stomach was churning at all of this and it didn't matter at all that it was Eliza's child. Like they just didn't care. Women get treated, it seems like, completely differently, almost as if they were more expendable because they rarely did any good business. And and Patsy's the outlier, right? Patsy's the one right. who brings in 500 pounds of cotton every time when the men can only do 200. She is not, or she is very unique. Yeah. She's not the norm. Well, and she she's not the norm, but... I think she represents a spirit of women and the strength that they have internally within their community. I think that Eliza represents the, both of them together, I think represent what I think are, what I think, I stress that, I think black women, black slavery, black female slavery was like where you had this gentle motherliness and an emotional connection to children and a softness to that. But either because of slavery or because of some other type of influence, you also have this inner strength to be very stoic. There's this really interesting moment at the very beginning of that woman who comes to Solomon in the middle of the night. And for a moment, she comes out of her own personal hell and is pleasured by him. And so she gets that moment of almost like release and freedom and feeling like where she can emotionally breathe and sensually breathe. And then she goes back to essentially the hell that she lives in by just turning over and crying. And I think that how women are portrayed in these various instances throughout the narrative, throughout the movie, gives us a full picture of what women were like. They endured. They endured in different ways, but they endured. And I think in a lot of ways, they were equally as strong as the men, but in different ways. And 
I think that McQueen portrays this in a fantastic way by giving us these three different women um, in the movie. Yeah. That's man, that's so good. I love that reading of it for sure. Um, so there's a few non-connecting point connecting points in this moment in this movie <laughs> where I wanted to just hit on any of them that were really impactful on us, and I know that we share one for sure. And that is the hanging scene with Solomon. This is a terrible moment by all regards. And it is, I hate to say this, but it is probably the single most memorable scene of this film for me. It's the one that haunts me. It's after he has attacked Tibbetts, um, Paul Dano's character. And he gets strung up and he is left while obviously Ford is not home yet. He's left there just with enough rope to not die. And McQueen, to me, this is where he he really shows his filmmaking prowess. He chooses to linger here and it is uncomfortable, like an, oh, very long, uncomfortable length. So long that we see different things taking place in the background. We see kids playing in the background. It's just, oh, it's, it's heart-wrenching to, to know that like he's potentially dying and hanging, but it's so normalized for them to see that happen to one of their fellow slaves that they don't even think anything of it. There's people in the background running around, watching him, but then there's others just completely oblivious to it. We see somebody run up and, and give him water. I believe it's Eliza. And then rush off real quick before anybody can catch her. And the whole time, there's a silence. To the there's no score backing it. There's there's an amazing score in this film, mind you, by Hans Zimmer, especially the theme. It's one of my favorite tracks by him ever. It's just it's so emotionally moving. But he doesn't use it in this moment. He just lets the sound of crickets and the constant sound of gurgling by Solomon like drive home how awful this act is. Um, and it was just, it was really hard for me to watch. Uh, I got to say that. It was hard for me to watch too, but what it told me was it was probably the best visual representation of what I think slave life in the South was. And it could be summed up like this. This is life. This is what it is. And this is normal. And it's sick because it shouldn't be. And it's so obvious that it shouldn't be. But I think what McQueen is doing is saying, yeah, it shouldn't be this way. But this was how it was. This is how life existed in terms of being a day in the life. People were getting hanged. People were getting whipped. There was always stuff going on. Kids were playing. Life went on. And I think he was also saying that in in the world of the South, slaves were expendable because they were property. And that's all they were. And to linger that long, I actually went back and I tried to get the time frame. And I want to say it was probably close to a minute and a half, which doesn't sound like long. But when you don't have music and when your camera is not making any dynamic cuts, 
it is incredibly awkward. And, uh, and I, I didn't like it, but I loved it. And if I could, if I could, you know, <laughs> I know exactly. Yes. Yeah. I felt the same way. That's what I meant. Like cinematically, it's perfect. It's one of the examples of why this is a masterful work of, of filmmaking, but at the same time, it's because of that awful feeling that it creates in us. Um, so one of the other ones that really was that powerful for me was Patsy, uh, toward the end. And she's been gone and she's been missing and she comes back and she says, he, he asks her something. He tells her to speak freely. Um, Epps does. And she says, freely? And you know why? And she pulls out this piece of soap. And she says, I got this from Mr. Shaw. Mistress Epps won't even grant me no soap to clean with. Stink so much I make myself gag. 500 pounds of cotton a day. Day in, day out. More than any man here. And for that, I will be clean. That is all I ask. This here is what I went to Miss Shaw's for. And it's a great moment, I think, of her standing up similar to how Solomon stood up to Tibbetts earlier in the film when he yeah. knew he was in the right, right? He's like, I didn't, these boards are fine. I'm not going to let you tell me differently. Um, and it, it's a super powerful, awful, painful scene again where we see the evil Mistress Epps who is demanding that her husband beat the life from her. And you can tell again that conflict in Epps of, caring enough about her that he doesn't want to do it. And so he forces Solomon to do it. And there's this quick moment where you hear Patsy off screen. Even she says, I'd rather it be you Platt. And I just, Oh dude, the breath just comes out of me in that moment yeah. because of what that means. I can't even fathom what it would be like to make another human being hurt like this. And I can't help but think of <laughs> to get back, not trying to go biblical again, but like, when we think about slavery and whipping and lashes, we think about Jesus and whipping mm -hmm. and lashes. And to be forced to endure that or to inflict it on another human being is awful. It absolutely is. And there's an interesting moment. I don't know. Again, I wish I knew when it happened because these are all purposefully shot. But I think it's shortly before or after the whipping where where Epps sees one of the young kids and he picks him up and he starts playing with him as if nothing's wrong. I look at I look at Epps and there's a small part of me, maybe like a half a percent, that feels sympathetic towards him because of his relationship with his wife. And when he starts beating Patsy in particular, there is this look on his face where he's angry and he's dismayed. And I think he is sad because he has to do this because of maybe a social pressure that he feels. And I, it's, it was weird to feel that in that moment because I was having this dual sympathy for her. Maybe no, a, a triple sympathy for her, for Solomon and for him uh, in that order. And it just, it made my stomach kind of go, what am I feeling here? What is this? And it reminded me that oftentimes we let culture dictate what we believe and how we feel instead of standing up to culture. And we see that in the reaction of Solomon and Patsy towards their respective people 
and that they're standing up not only to their masters, but also to the culture and saying this, there's a sense of decency that you're missing. Uh, for Solomon, he was like, I did exactly what you said. You will not talk to me that way. I am a man and, and I will not be, I will not be treated like that. Patsy was the same way. She was saying basic human decency says, I need to bathe. I make myself gag. I needed this. This is why. And I'm okay admitting that to you because that exceeds any kind of other lie I could tell. This is the truth and it's rational truth and you will believe that. And I think at that point she knew that her life was over or that she was going to get something. And so she really had nothing to lose. And I think that's part of her character is that she has built up this hardening, not only from the physical labor that she's done, you know, putting 500 pounds of cotton on her back, but also from the emotional way. I mean, she's gotten raped by this guy. So what else could happen? What could be worse except death? She wants it. So why not? And I feel like in that moment, her strength really came through in standing up to the culture through that conversation with him. Totally does. Totally. So the other one is this ending of when Solomon is rescued and this man comes from the north and, and there's this great moment where Epps is saying, Platt, get back in the, the plow and, you know, this is my property. And the man says, he is Mr. Solomon Northup. And I love that. I love there's this moment of affirming his identity and his name. It's a, it's been something that he has been forced not to use, something he's been warned over and over not to ever let slip that he has this other name. And so for the first time in 12 years, he hears somebody else using it and telling him that that's who he is, like reminding him, I think. And it's such a strong moment. But it's also very tragic because he's leaving Patsy. And if there's one of the few things that I wonder about leaving in the film, it's, it's watching him quickly kind of go away from her, not look back that much. And it, and it makes me wonder what happened to Patsy, because I, I don't think we really get any kind of resolution to her character after that. It's just like she's left in the fields, you know, and I know it's Solomon's story, but it's like, wh whatever happened to her? But then he ends up being reunited with his family. And it's just this emotional overload that I can't even imagine. The thing is, when he greets them and sees them for the first time, he almost in tears struggles to get these words out. But he says, I apologize for my appearance, but I have had a difficult time these past several years. And he asks them for forgiveness. And the, I know, I know, right? The embrace that comes after that is just the most cathartic thing in the entire movie to me and it's it's just it's just wild and I, and I just I couldn't believe the goodness in that he would have the decency he, he keeps asking them to forgive him for being gone and for getting kidnapped it's, it's wild um it's so sad but it's also beautiful the way that they immediately bring him back into the family. Well, it says a lot about who he is and how he cared deeply of, of taking care of his family. He was the man of the house. He was the husband of one wife and the father of two children. Uh, in actuality, I, I read that he's actually had three children, but the third one was omitted for some reason or another. But seeing him reunite with his family and seeing that generational gap kind of get filled in where we see his uniting with his granddaughter because he was asking 
who is this? And uh, this is your, this is my wife or this is my husband. I can't remember. Yeah, it was my husband. And seeing the look on his face, I mean, he just looked weathered. You mentioned that he doesn't age throughout the course of the, of the movie. But I think in that moment, that cathartic exhale showed his wear, showed his wear and tear. I'll, I'll tell you what I love the most about that was the scene prior to that when he's being reunited with, with his friend and he's getting in the back, you see Epps coming forward. And he's being questioned and the guy is asking him all these like validation questions. And then without skipping a beat, he immediately says, what's your wife's name? So-and-so, what are your kids' names? Blah, 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 blah. Where are you from? I mean, he is just, you would think that he would hesitate. He's been out. He hasn't spoken of them. At least we haven't seen him speak of them for over a decade. And he immediately just has it come back. And for me, that was healing. Because he could say their name. He could say where he was from. He could say his name, yes. But he could say all these things that were like, that's my old life. That is it. That's where I'm from. This is who I am. And to me, that was a victory. Coupled with the fact that Epps comes down and says, what are you doing? And I'm like, you're going down, dude. He's leaving. And I was like you in that I wasn't as curious as what was going to happen with Patsy. But I was like, are we going to see Epps get his comeuppance? And we don't. And I think that's okay because, again, it's not his story. It's not Patsy's story. It's Solomon's story. Whatever happened, I'm I'm curious, but I I, but I know that that wasn't the important thing. But I think that's the point, right? The point is that this man got his freedom back. But this isn't a wonderful, happy ending of a story because Epps still is a slave owner, just as the millions of slaves still have slave owners. And Patsy is just another slave that's probably going to die under his awful rule of his house. You know what I mean? And that's the, that's the hard truth is that Solomon escaping was great for Solomon and his family. It's beautiful, but it didn't change anything in, in, in the moment for those people that were, right. that he knew. So yeah, it's, it's ultimately there's always going to be tragedy to this. Um, even in a brief, hopeful moment for one person yeah i think that was by design the fact that Mm -hmm. this wasn't about freeing the slaves it was about solomon getting his freedom for sure and the consequences of that and the repercussions of that well are you ready for a connecting point let's connect man let's Let's, do it let's connect man okay we're gonna (laughs) connect man um well i think i said earlier but the, the film could have been a connecting point all the way through and choosing one was not an easy task, but we decided to save this for the connecting point together and talk about this kind of here in this section. And I, just to refresh everyone, in case you haven't seen the film in recent years, it is Brad Pitt's moment. I know jokingly earlier I was saying he's kind of the worst acting performance of the film, and I don't know that it's bad acting. It just felt not as immersive as everybody else in the film. It felt like Brad Pitt playing a role as opposed to Paul Giamatti being a secondary to the character he was playing. Mm-hmm. Yep, 100% agree. But yet the screenplay uh, in this section and what actually takes place and what is said in this conversation between Bass and Epps is super connecting point. So um, I'm going to play the audio here and then we'll talk about it. Something rubs you wrongly, I offer you the opportunity to speak on it. 
ask plainly, so I will tell you plainly. What amused me just then was your concern for my well-being in this heat, when, quite frankly, the condition of your laborers. Condition of my laborers? It is horrid. The hell? It's all wrong. All wrong, Mr. Epps. They ain't hired help. They're my property. You say that with pride. I say it as fact. This conversation concerns what is factual and what is not. Then it must be said that there is no justice nor righteousness in this slavery. But you do open up an interesting question. What right have you to your niggas when you come down to the point? What right? Mm. I bought them. I paid for them. Of course you did, and the law says you have the right to hold a nigger. But begging the law's pardon, it lies. Suppose they pass a law taking away your liberty, making you a slave. Suppose. That ain't a supposable case. Laws change, Epps. Universal truths are constant. It is a fact, a plain and simple fact, that what is true and right is true and right for all. White and black alike. You compare me to a nigger, Bass? I'm only asking in the eyes of God, what is the difference? All right. Well, what I love about this, beyond the religious aspect of it, and I'm going to save that. I'm going to let you kind of hit on that for a second. But the universal truth that Bass talked about, it's awesome to see Epps kind of get his comeuppance from somebody of his own color to get told you're wrong straight to his face. There's a couple things that I really took away from this. One is that this moment to me is what allows Solomon to eventually get his freedom because he sees this conversation between Bass and Epps and it allows him to trust Bass later in asking him to contact his wife despite being completely betrayed by the last white man that he entrusted. And it also shows me what I feel like a white ally could have looked like back then, or the beginnings of someone to be an ally, and therefore what it could kind of look like today. Because the oppressed are rarely going to be heard, and they are you're not going to listen to their reason if you're an oppressor. It takes other people of equal status to the oppressors standing up against them to get that message heard and to make an impact. And so that's what we see here. And I I love that we get a moment of that. And I also love that later on this plays out when Bass is talking to Solomon about writing his letter and Bass acknowledges straight up his own fear. He says, I'm scared. This puts me in danger. But unlike Ford's character from earlier in the film... I believe in humanity enough that I'm going to put my neck on the line for you yeah. because it's the right thing to do and because of this is the universal truth. And so it's super powerful for me. I think that when I, when I look at Bass, he represents the best of what it means to be free, tying back into my one more takeaway And he has a perspective that is independent of what the current cultural landscape is. This conversation, it it sold me on his objectivity. And from a faith-based perspective, using what I believe is the only truth to convey a message that 
elevates humanity above whiteness and blackness. To me, he is the middle ground between Ford and Epps in his character. Benevolent, but not afraid. Stern, but not harsh. And knowing that he wasn't some composite character, but actually an actual person, encourages me even more. He wasn't made up. His ideology wasn't made up. This was who he was. And I love how the whole conversation starts with him refusing to take a drink, but how he crafts it into a conversation and not a protest of sorts, saying what he believes and and saying it confidently. He was actually there to build something. I mean, he was doing construction. He wasn't there to protest. He wasn't there to start a revolution. And that's what surprises me the most because he didn't set out to change the world, but he knew that it needed changing. His role was like to actively and in some ways quietly dismantle this cultural truth in favor of what he saw was the universal truth that is constant. Bass represents someone I want to align myself with, someone who isn't fighting against culture, but fighting for truth that in the eyes of God, there is no difference between black and white. And I think that his character is one that a lot of us could latch on to because he is both a friend and an ally, and in some ways one that lives proactively and not reactively to the world around him. Yeah, no, it's perfect, man. It's so perfect. I'm I'm glad that we pulled the same thing out of it. And I and I totally agree. Like I wanted to be bass. And I wanted to believe that in this situation, I would be Bass. But I love that the film gives me these other characters that make me realize, you know, I've probably, you don't know what we would have been, right? Because culture at that time was largely dictated by where you grew up. And you didn't, you didn't, you didn't have choices necessarily. If Ford grew up the son of a plantation owner, then he very likely was going to grow into a slave master, just like his father and his grandfather and such. And so it's it's a very hard cycle to break. And, you know, we're still fighting against that cycle today in yeah. many, many ways. So here's what I think is interesting about Bass is that there's an interesting contrast in the fact that he he's not defending Solomon specifically. He understands the world that he's working in and living in. He refers to black people as the N-word. And he does it so nonchalantly. He doesn't see offense in that. And because it wasn't offensive. It wasn't something that today we see as offensive because it represents something negative. And so he recognizes this is the culture that he is around. But I love the fact that he almost is this omnipotent character, this omniscient, omnipotent. I can't remember. This character that is above the world that he is sitting in. And that he can see almost an objective worldview from both the black and white side. And he seems like the only person in this movie that is justified in saying something like that, which is weird because one, he's from Canada and two, he's a very real person. That's what, that's why I was so surprised that he's not a composite. He's not an ideological person like this. This guy existed and he was this person. And it reminds me that in a lot of ways, we don't have to have the harsh reality of 
the culture that we live in to make a point that we can see hope and we can see validity from the other side of that that is equally as powerful and and that's what i think bass is that's good man that's that's so true i'm gonna let you end on that because i completely agree (laughs) stamp it stamp it right there awesome (laughs) well listeners thank you for sticking with us through this um hopefully you have gotten a lot out of this film maybe you got a lot out of this conversation or something and that would be great too um, again, we both definitely highly recommend it. If for some reason you listen to this and haven't seen it yet, you need to. It's an essential movie as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think Patrick would agree based on what we just talked about. Yes, he would. So one thing we do want to tell you about real quick before we leave is that we have a new bonus episode out right now as well that also kind of celebrates Black History Month. And in it, we discuss some of the films that have helped provide perspective and empathy for us. And it's a very personal episode, so we'd love for you to check that one out. You can do that by visiting our Patreon. You can visit that site at patreon.com slash feelinfilm. And you can get access to bonus content for as little as $2 a month. It really helps us out, and it gives you a little something extra too. So give it a click, check out that site, and see if it's something you might be interested in. Thanks for the conversation, Aaron. Coming up in a few short days, we will be covering one of the Oscar-nominated films that we didn't get to talk about during its theatrical run, Spike Lee's Black Klansman. So we hope you guys tune in for that. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.